Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. And I just want to point out that Sammy Hadjassad is currently broadcasting live from the 21st floor. What the? 21st Uh, floor, everybody. Don't forget how high Sammy's studio is. That is a bit of new news to our listeners, but here's a bit of old news. In case you haven't listened to this podcast before, I will share it with you anyways. Me and Ben are a pair of automotive journalists, and we like to use this podcast as a means of getting a lot of stuff off our minds, particularly when it comes to the automotive industry. Uh, this week, I've got a pair of cars, and uh, jo- and uh, who am I with here? Ben. ben Joey Jojo Jofferson. It's the worst, be- worst name you could ever come up with. And Ben will be talking about one very exciting car, which we'll save for the end of the podcast. Is that fair, Ben? Sure thing, Joey Jojo. Joey Jojo. I'm going to start with um, two cars that I had at the same time. I was doing a little comparison, even though they're not very comparable. So here they are. Y- they're y- the... Y- yes. Just, I'm going to interrupt you. There's this quote that I, I never, it's never been able to, I've never been able to forget it. I remember Will Smith was talking about when he first became famous. I think it was, well, not when he first became famous, but after, I guess, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, just before he made Bad Boys. And he was talking to his dad about, like, the cars that he had bought. And, like, he bought a whole bunch of, you know, nouveau riche cars of the era, like 911s and Ferraris and stuff. And his dad said, why would you have more than one car? You don't have more than one butt, so you can't drive more than one at the same time. And then Will Smith <laughs> took that to heart and he sold all of his cars. So whenever you say I had two cars, I immediately think of Will Smith's dad. Uh, you're not wrong. Honestly, it's hard to drive two cars at the same time. Um, I typically end up just driving one block at a time and then running back and getting the other car and then driving it ahead of the other car like one block and then running back and getting this. Anyways, the two cars I had were the Kia Soul and the Toyota CHR. Um, two cars that I would determine they're not quite crossovers, and I'll explain that in a second, but they're really like um, unique. They look different. Uh, they catch people's attention, and they're interesting. And well, what, I think that's kind of, that's kind makes, of rare in the, indus- in the industry now. What makes them not quite crossovers? Because they're both um, front-wheel drive only. Uh, they don't offer uh, any enhanced, I would say, capability over a regular car, for example. And you know they're the subcompact. You know the subcompact crossover segment is already kind of tough to call a compact. I mean a crossover when they're really marginally raised hatchbacks. We've had this discussion in the past. Okay. Wrong. Yes. <laughs> Are you agreeing with me or disagreeing with well, me? Well, you know, crossover is such a nebulous term that if we try to define it, I mean, I think it was intended to apply to vehicles that didn't fit anywhere else. Yeah, so that's a great way to put it. I would describe them as both being, you know, quirky styled cars that offer um, some practical elements, and um, they're available at a, at a low price. I so think they're, they're, in that they're, sense, they are quite comparable. They have a lot in common in that world. But I that. think that the both of those cars, though, come at it in a different way. I think the CHR, mm-hmm. you can make an argument that it is a lifted hatchback. Okay. Whereas with the Soul, I think it's a lifted wagon. Because it has the longer, flatter roof. The So let's start with the Soul. I, I actually want to talk about the Soul. The Soul, I don't think, is actually lifted in any reasonable way. It's more like that, um, it's more like a Nissan Cube or a Scion XV. Two other cube-like cars, box-like cars, that have died off. So it's a square wagon. 
It's a square vehicle. It's a very square Why wagon. Why won't you say wagon? There we go. So you said it. I heard you say it. Um, and you step, but you you sit quite up upright in this car, and you don't sit like um, it's it does have a very crossover or SUV like uh, riding position because you don't sit low. The the windows are pulled quite low down, so it has a low uh, belt line, and it feels like a crossover in that sense. It's a box. It is a box. And you know what? It's interesting to talk about those other cars that haven't survived. I mean, the XB, the Cube, the Honda Element, these are all cars that haven't made it to 2018. Um, and the Soul, which I believe hit um, the U.S. market in tw- 2009, has sold one million copies um, to date. But and to be- we'll be getting a third generation model later this year. To be fair, there are reasons why each of those vehicles you mentioned did not make it to 2018. Okay, well, hit me with it. Why do you think the why did the why did the Nissan Cube no longer why does the Nissan Cube no longer? I why don't think that? I don't think the Cube had the sales to back it up. I think the Cube was a cool idea, okay, and it was more of a style focused vehicle. And I think that the Cube styling is a very difficult thing to evolve. We've talked in the past about how retro styling is kind of you box yourself into a corner because you either have to do what Camaro did, which was totally move away from the retro look uh, as time moves on. Or you do what Chrysler's done, which is not really change things at all with the Challenger. Um, and it's same, <laughs> Not the, even the car at all. But if you look at something like the FJ Cruiser, mm-hmm. that's a vehicle that it ceased to exist. There was a design dead end. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to make a, another modern take on a, a retro design? It's hard to do. And I think the Cube is kind of that retro futuristic kind of thing. It was It was a vehicle of its time, and it didn't have the sales to justify a complete rethink. For the Scion, and- Scion XB... Scion went out of business. It's very easy to figure out why that vehicle stopped um, in its tracks. But also, the XB, if you look at the original XB, it was totally a box. It was like one of those – it was like the Daihatsu Wake, like one of those Japanese market-only key car boxes, except it was a little bit bigger. And then the second generation, it wasn't. They made it like a blobby, formless crossover, and people stopped buying it. So, so with with the soul, the soul, I would admit it's 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 it reminds me a lot of those two cars that we've mentioned, the Cube and the X and the XB. But there's something about the soul that stands out still, and I don't know if the style. Um, I think a major part of it has to do with that ridiculous advertising campaign that catches people's attention with those dancing hamsters. Um, there's just something about the soul that has caused it, that has allowed it to survive in a in a space that. Other cars haven't. I also think Kia is willing to invest money in keeping the Soul alive. Uh, they've created okay. the EV version of the Soul, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that that's a significant investment for them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at that, the, the third vehicle you mentioned, um, the, the Honda Element. Honda Element. So the reason the Element died, and there is a reason, is because they couldn't meet fuel economy with it anymore. Yeah. It was just the engine was very old, the drivetrain was old, they didn't invest in it, and as a result, by the time it was it was ready to be replaced, there was nothing waiting in the wings. So those three vehicles all had three specific things working against them, but I think Kia, to its credit, has, has consistently works. Yeah, well, and they've consistently evolved it. They they haven't right. just let it die on them. They didn't just make the Soul as a novelty. Mm-hmm. And then um, walked away from it. I think. Yeah, let it rot. Right? Like they, Toyota, they it, they, yeah, yeah, they didn't let it rot. Whereas Toyota with the Scion, they did try to fix it, and they they made a horrible mistake. But for the for the Cube and for the um, the Element, they just didn't do anything. 
So this this sole, I I really like the way it looks. Um, it stands out, and in fact, the more you drive it, I, the more you start noticing other Kia soles on the market on the on the road, which I think is really interesting. It just feels like you're part of this like boxy car club now. Did you make um, new friends? Did you actually talk to these people, or did no, you just... not yet? It does rem- like a couple of other cars do this. I think the Veloster has like this on the road club. Um, Jeep owners are always giving each other like a heads up or a. Miatas used to have it. Miatas, I think Civics is, or some Civic enthusiasts would say that they're part of Civic Nation, which is another sort of like on the road car club, which is kind of neat, right? Every time Sammy says Civic Nation, we're legally required to donate a portion of the proceeds of this podcast to Honda, <laughs> which is so, which is so sad because we have no proceeds, man. <laughs> that that's that was supposed to be a secret. Oh right, um, but. As cool as the Kia is on the exterior, I would say the interior, the car is a little more conventional. It, in, in fact, if it wasn't for um, some interesting looking speaker grills as well as orange stitching, the car looks almost like every other Kia out there. Um, and that's a bit of a letdown for me. And I'll talk about the CHR, which does a funky exterior and a funky interior. Um, but the Soul is lacking this really important way of bringing out the, the bringing the exterior um uniqueness into the car but here's what it does have and you're gonna love this because i love this i would love to be able to love something you are capable of love as much as you are as greeting human listeners um around the speaker grills are these light um they're light shows there's like this sweet light ring that changes color based on apparently your mood or the beat to the music that you're listening to do you have to give a blood sample like how does it know i don't know how it knows but it's I, I mean, if it's going red, apparently I, I will start to be angry. So maybe it's the other way around. It will influence my mood rather than me influencing my mood, influencing the color. How much do you like this? I've never seen this on a car before. I'm, I'm, completely, like I'm completely agnostic as to the light show. Why? The it's just, I mean, okay, I don't have a problem with it, but like, I'm not going to buy my car based on a speaker light show. I mean, I guess that's where you and I are different. Well... I'm just saying, a light show is a pretty neat gimmick that uh, few cars have, and that's what I'm trying to get at with these cars. They're very, I won't, I don't want to call them gimmicky, but they're they're unique, they're interesting. They they make you remember that there's still an automaker out there trying to have fun with their designs, um, and the Soul is definitely something like that. But under the hood is where the car gets um, really interesting. It's got a 1.6 liter turbocharged four-cylinder engine. That makes 201 horsepower and 195 pound-feet of torque. Uh, we've talked about this engine in the past. I believe something very similar to it is in the Veloster. It's in the Kia Forte um, SX. It's in the Elantra Sport. Uh, and the it's Elantra everywhere. GT. It is in the Hyundai Kia lineup, and it's a pretty solid engine. I think it's a sweetheart of an engine. It's very um, powerful. It sounds pretty good, um, and there's not much to complain about in this engine. Would you agree with me on that? Sure. You know, you know, I wanted to uh, back things up a little bit. We we're talking sure. about sales for those vehicles that you mentioned, and I, I just took a quick look. So the best year for the XB was was uh, 2006, and it sold 61,000 units. And wow. it's in its last year, last couple years before it went away, it only sold 15,000. And then you look at the Cube, and the best year for the Cube was 22,000 in 2010. And then in its last year, it sold 943. And then if you look at the Element. The best, best, best year for the Element was 2003. It sold 67,000, but in 2011, by the time it was kind of, you know, well past its due date, it only sold 11,000. 
The Kia Soul sold 115,000 last year alone. That's insane, right? In its like, best year, it sold 147,000. It hasn't yeah. sold less than 100,000 units since 2011. Yeah. So and that's it's demolishing the market. It is. It, it, it is doesn't look up. like it's on pace to reach 100,000 this year yet. Um, but the year is still young, I suppose. And like I mentioned earlier, a new generation one will be coming um, later this year, I believe. And it's expected to show up, I think, in November. So, I mean, the Soul is a sales monster. How did that happen? Like, what does it? Like, I pricing, said, I... pricing, convenience, practicality. It's it's the right combination of things together. It's it not it's company. not so wacky. You don't ignore it. It's useful to the point where you can see it fitting in your life, and it's priced where you can afford it. I also, like I said, I think they put it in the face of people uh, in the right way with those hamster commercials. I don't know what it is, but people love those commercials. If that were true, then you could just put a hamster on anything and sell 100,000 units. So you're saying the CHR, uh, it only sold 25,000 last year. So if you put a hamster well, on the CHR this... didn't have a full model year. A model year okay, well, this year it's only done 17 to date. We're like halfway through the year. So I'm curious, if you put a hamster on the CHR... Are you going to sell Kia Soul levels of of numbers? There's only one way to find out, and we'll have to we'll have to figure it out when we get our hamster back from um, the vet. What did you right? do to the hamster? <laughs> Nothing. He wasn't feeling so good, so I yeah, took him to the vet. He's not feeling so good because you did something to him. No, I didn't do anything to him. He, I'm like, I wish I could believe you. I just fed him some stuff. <sighs> um. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, you mentioned practicality. Actually, I was I wanted to get into the powertrain of the vehicle, but you mentioned practicality. The practicality of this car is really um, impressive. It has to do with that boxy design of the car. It's super easy to load stuff into this vehicle, and I found it almost um, surprisingly practical. I, I mean, you look at the car; it doesn't look giant, but the amount of stuff that you can fit in it—it's almost like uh, like a clown car. Like it's almost magical. The amount well, it's of stuff a box. I mean, it's it's the most efficient shape for moving anything. I ended up having to put um, my own uh, exercise bag, a a giant suitcase, um, a pair of backpacks, and a laptop bag into this thing, uh, into the trunk without having to fold the rear seats down or anything like that or hinder any rearward visibility, which is pretty neat. Does it feel good to brag about your active lifestyle? Uh, only on this podcast. Only when I do it on this podcast. When I do it around other normal people, it feels really awkward. Nobody seems interested in listening to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe it's 24 cubic feet with the seats up, and it, that expands to over 60 when the seats are folded down. That's pretty impressive. I don't think um, any subcompact crossover has figures like that. And that's an advantage for the Soul, for people who are not sold on on crossovers. The Kia Soul isn't quite a crossover, but it has more capability than one, that's for sure. All right, enough about the Soul. Wait, I didn't didn't even talk about the powertrain. We did talk about the powertrain. No, we just talked about the engine. Let me tell you, the engine's cool, but the transmission is a complete dud. It's a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission, and it needs to go badly. Like, it's so bad, man. Um, it miss it, it, it hesitates on upshifts and downshifts. It's, uh, really rough, um, at slow speeds and, uh, and it just feels like it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to. So I really wish that Kia had an alternate choice for, for, uh, a transmission or like say a manual transmission, this 1.6 liter turbo would be awesome with a manual transmission, um, or something else. They need to fix this dual clutch and, uh, that would go a really, a really long way. What transmission's in the CHR? A CVT. And that's better than this dual clutch? Uh, it's smoother. It's it gets it's less noticeable. You know what I mean? 
I don't know what you mean. I've never driven a CHR. Okay. Um, and then one final thing about the about the Soul is that it's lacking a lot of features um, in its highest end trim. So the 1.6 liter turbo comes with the only thing that we're, we're talking about is a blind spot monitoring system. Um, and if you wanted to get smart cruise control and lane keep uh, or lane departure warning, you would have to get another engine, a lower, a less powerful model of the car. Hmm. hmm. A little weird. Yeah, that is a little weird, isn't it? Should we? I mean, I, will, I don't want to question Kia in this case. They clearly know how to sell souls, Ugh, Kia souls. <laughs> um, and but that seems like a weird packaging thing that needs to, that should be rectified in the next generation car. You don't think so? Well, you know, if you look at there's some other weird stuff like that uh, around the market. If you look at the CTS-V, for example, it doesn't have adaptive cruise control because um, the front end, they require all of the grille opening for cooling for the supercharged engine. So if you've got like the lesser version of the CTS, you get adaptive cruise. But if you buy the most expensive, you don't get it. Isn't that weird? Yeah. But there's That's usually a very curious situation, but that makes sense. But there's usually an engineering reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but you want to talk about the CHR. The CHR is, is newer than the Kia Soul. It's built on the TNGA um, architecture, which is the same thing that's underpinning the Prius, I believe. And the Camry. And the Camry, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to prove its worth, Toyota has, has boasted about the development of this uh, architecture and that, that it spent some time on the Nürburgring. Um, now, the CHR isn't isn't a sports car. It's not a track-ready car, but it is one of the most responsive and engaging cars that I've ever driven with a Toyota badge on it in some time. And that really surprised me because Toyota has had a bad rap for uh, making boring cars. And uh, this is something that is not just exciting to look at, but is pretty exciting to drive, too. Um, but you know what? We were, met, we were talking about the Scion XB. The CHR was actually designed from the get-go to be, um, or was expected to be a Scion when it hit the, the U.S. market. But Which is why I believe there's, there's only one trim level and no options. Well, there's two trim levels. There's an XLE and an XLE premium. There's very little se separating the two, though. Okay. Um, but you can clearly see that this car has like that design flair that is meant to attract a younger demographic, and that was kind of Scion's um, shtick at the time. Uh, and I think it works. I really can't get enough of this car. It looks like a good-looking juke, and and it has like these really neat proportions. It's um, it's available in a number of different colors as well as two-tone color options, which I think is really cool. It looks like one of those um, those crossover coupes. You know, it has these hidden rear door handles. So you don't quite realize that it's it's got four doors until you take a closer look. It's a neat little car. Um. And as I mentioned, this, the, the handling and the steering is, is really solid as well. I only have a few complaints with the car in terms of uh, how it is on the road. That's the, the, uh, the engine is no good. It's a two-liter. No good. There's that word again. No good. Not good. Um, it's a two-liter four-cylinder engine. It makes 144 horsepower and 139 pound-feet of torque. And I, maybe I'm being a little harsh. It just doesn't. It doesn't exude the personality of the car under the hood. You know but what I mean? But I thought you like, said it was an engaging car to drive. So how can it be engaging if the engine is, quote-unquote, no good? It's the steering and suspension that really make this car, um, like, fun, like, actually fun, which is weird. It's very rarely is that the case where the car's on-road um, mannerisms 
are more um, prioritized by the by the handling than the powertrain. Most of the time, it's the other way around. And I think you'd agree with me. You usually feel excited in a fast car, um, and few people feel really um, in, in like in tune with a car that just handles really well. And no one's really looking for a crossover that handles really well. No, I, mean, that's I, don't, right. I don't think that's a shocking thing to say. No, no one is no one is looking for a car that handles. So that's why I'm trying to tell you it's it's very surprising how how buttoned down this the steering and handling is on the CHR. So so which one would you take? That's tough. Well, there's a couple of other things we've got to talk about though. Like the interior of the CHR um, is a is a there's a couple of pros and cons here. It's a very uniquely styled car. As I mentioned with the Kia Soul, when you get into the car, you can tell that it's a Kia. But when you get into the the Toyota CHR, the interior is almost like nothing other, no other Toyota it, it's got. It's a very clean design. It's unique. There's a very limited use of buttons. The layout is 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 fresh. It's really cool. Um, the low part, the low points here though, is that it doesn't have. It can't come with navigation. It has no Android Auto or Apple CarPlay support, and the rear view camera display is a tiny, tiny little display in the rear view mirror that takes up about a quarter or a third of the rear view mirror, so you can barely see what's going on there. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand why car companies do that. I mean, is there no screen on the center stack? No, there's a huge one, a seven-inch one. So why not Why not use that? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's supposed to be a safety feature, but if I have to squint, I might as well just turn around and use the full-size window behind the car <laughs> to yeah. park, you know? I, I agree with you. It is, a, it is super curious. I have no idea why they did this. And... You know, you mentioned it. It's a safety feature. You want me to run down the rest of the safety features that the CHR comes with as standard equipment? It's insane. It has forward collision warning with automatic braking. It has pedestrian detection. It has uh, adaptive cruise control, lane keep, uh, lane departure warning and lane keep assistance, blind spot monitoring, and rear cross traffic alert. How can it not have a proper rear view camera display? It's kind of weird, and I can't think of a reason. I mean, it's not like... Toyota doesn't have that technology in any of its other vehicles. But I really enjoy the the design, the exterior design of the car. I love the way it handles, and I think that's something that I prioritize over the raw speed of the um of the Soul. If I had to compare the, the raw two. speed of the that, that's I don't think anyone has ever used that phrase in describing the Kia Soul. Well, I mean, I'm I'm talking about these two cars in a vacuum, and the and the Soul is much more powerful than the than the uh, CHR. No, I understand what you're saying, but it's just funny to hear your turn of phrase. Okay, um, and uh, and I really do enjoy the, the the handling of this car. It's a tiny bit uh, less expensive, maybe about two thousand dollars less expensive, and you get more equipment in the CHR. So I would, if it was my money, that's the kind of car that I would be going to. And I'm not really that sold on practicality, not yet at this point of time in my life where I have to transport tires every week. Oh yeah, so I transported tires today. <laughs> In case anyone was curious, actually today, like literally two hours ago, I transported ten, no, nine tires. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. A, f a full set of winters, a full set of summer performance tires, and an extra summer performance tire that I had lying around because I flat spotted the its twin. Uh, so I would recommend the Kia Soul in your in your case because you need that much cargo hauling capability if you were to buy a new car uh, of these two. But you know what? To me, these two cars represent something that's really interesting in the segment, and that's uh, in the in the automotive industry, which are cars that are that are full of personality, that are really unique. They catch people's eyes, um, and they're and they they make you smile. Be it with their design, with their on-road behavior, with their interior design, with the weird things like light 
uh, light emitting speaker grills. It's it's neat. It's really. I like neat. how you're not into practicality, but you're totally <laughs> sold on these speaker grills. Like yeah. you are you are a marketer's dream. You're, they're <laughs> sitting around. Somewhere there's a boardroom right now where people, how do we get young people into cars? And the guy's like, I know. We're going to light up those speaker grills. And then we're going to light up the steering wheel the year after that. And 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 everyone's thinking, that's a terrible idea. That's not going to work. And then you're at home dr- having a dream. You don't even know. But you're participating in this group mass hallucination of lit up speaker grills bouncing to your mood and shining you with the colors of LEDs that you've never even imagined before. And then you wake up and you think, oh, I got to buy a Kia Soul. Yeah, that would be that is a dream come true, honestly, uh, as opposed to that one guy in the corner of the boardroom who's like, oh, why don't we put have a giant? Uh, why don't we make the rearview camera show up on the seven inch screen of the CHR? Why doesn't the Kia Soul have an ice machine? <laughs> why can't it make snow cones? Um, I love these two cars. I'm glad that they're on the market. Uh, either choice is a, is a good one. If it was my money, I'd take the Toyota CHR. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that picking a soul over the CHR, it's a bad decision. What about you? What if you, do you have any opinion on these two cars? When was the last time you driven a soul? I told you around. I have, I haven't driven the CHR, but I have driven the soul a fair bit. And I, I've always liked the soul. I, I'm a, a champion of squared off right angle, heavy cars. Like I like, <laughs> I like boxes. It's to me, the soul is a tiny Ford flex and <laughs> yeah, that's a that's, great way to put it. That's perfect. If, if there were more vehicles like that, I would be a happier human being. But where I live in Montreal, there are a ton of souls. Kia is very, very popular. So I see them everywhere and it's a, it's a little, you know, it's a, a bit of a bonus to see one coming around the corner and know that somebody bought that instead of a more anonymous, boring looking crossover. Yeah, isn't that so? now? If you could, if you could improve this car, do you think all-wheel drive would be um, an improvement, or do you think yeah, that would I think, hinder the the capability of the like the practicality of the car? No, there's no hindrance whatsoever. I think all-wheel no, drive. No, running is, a running a running a drivetrain to the back, to the rear wheels could really impact uh, passenger space, cargo. It and depends passenger. how you did it. I mean, if you did it as a hybrid system, it wouldn't. But um, it's the. There's no question they would sell more if there was an all-wheel drive option because the okay. people have been so brainwashed by marketing. Again, the, those people in that boardroom, uh, when they're not thinking about the LED, LED light shows, they're thinking about convincing you to be terrified of driving in inclement weather <laughs> unless you have all-wheel drive. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they they like subliminally insert murder messages into you know like movies about snow and winter and ice. Just yeah. to get you terrified about the idea that, oh, man, if I don't have all four wheels spinning, I'm going to end up in the ditch. So, yes, all-wheel drive would increase sales. I don't know by how much, and I don't know by how much more you would have to increase the price of the soul to make all-wheel drive happen. So it's possible there's like a tipping point where mm-hmm. it just it's not worth it. Uh, and it would also put them maybe up against some vehicles. Like you don't consider it a, a real SUV or a crossover because it doesn't have that feature. So maybe if it did – they would be in a market that they're not prepared to compete in. Well, you know what? You brought up a hybrid powertrain in this car. If this had the powertrain of a Nero, and the Nero starts um, at $23,000 in the U.S., while the Soul starts at sixteen at the most affordable level, which is, uh, is kind of weird. Um, that's a big gap between cars. It's a huge gap. It's a big gap. But if, It's a huge gap. <laughs> it's a pretty big gap, I would say. And if you were to put the Nero powertrain into a Soul, do you think that'd be pretty? That, I think that'd be pretty effective. I guess so, but then well, why, then would, why you, would you buy a Nero? Yeah, it's, it's, 
I mean, they're selling six figures of these a year, so they know what they're doing. I mean, we're we're meanwhile we're talking about light up speaker grills, like we yeah, know something so about that. Cool. They're so cool. You have no idea, Ben. <laughs> okay, fine. Enough talking about these two cars. You're clearly bored. Um, what have you been driving? What is the situation? What what is this cool car that? We what is the situation? Yeah. Uh, what is this cool car that we were teasing earlier on the podcast? Well, it, it actually I didn't drive it recently, but I've been writing about it recently, and I, I drove it earlier in the month, like oh, almost a full month ago, I think. It's the uh, it was a 1993 Mazda RX-7 R1, which was from Mazda Canada's classic collection. So. I don't know if you know this, but out, out there in amazing. listener, this is already amazing. Out there in listener land, there's a few car companies that keep a collection of drivable classics available pretty much all year round. And what I mean, it's not unusual for a car company to have a big museum or a warehouse filled with prototypes and important, you know, milestone cars that they built. But company companies like Mazda, Toyota, and a few others, Nissan is one of them. They keep them available to be driven by the media. And they have a small, you know, retinue of engineers, mechanics, and experts who keep these vehicles drivable. They, they, it's not just that you can start it up and drive it around the warehouses. You can take this out on the road. It's licensed. It's been inspected. And it's it's safe enough to drive in a modern context. So I had the chance to go to Toronto, which is where Mazda keeps its classic collection in Canada. And they have a very cherry, bright yellow um, FD. I was there because I was doing a piece on the car for Haggerty Classic Cars. I did a buying guide, a very in-depth buying guide on the car, but I also did a drive uh, piece on it about a few weeks later. And this was not my first time driving the FD Sammy. I'd actually, uh, maybe three years ago, I went to Japan to mm -hmm. the Mine Proving Grounds just outside of Hiroshima, and I drove every generation of the RX-7 on a racetrack. This um, is the but okay, including this RX7 and this third generation RX7. Yeah, I drove all the generations they have, and I even drove a hydrogen powered RX8, which was kind of what? <laughs> yeah, they had it. It was a dual fuel car, so there's a switch inside, and you flip the switch, and it cuts the horsepower in half. Okay, and then you're using hydrogen, so it's 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 the hydrogen combustion type, not a fuel cell type mm -hmm. of uh, of arrangement. Yeah, it was very cool. Mine is the test track where Mazda does all of its development. Uh, they also had um, a three-rotor Cosmo from the 90s there. They mm -hmm. had some rotary prototypes. They had a, a, a Ropu uh, pickup truck. Mm. It was it was a, it was a very cool day. But uh, I was excited to drive the FD on the street because I'd never done that. Like so, on the yeah, track, you've got to hit me up because I've driven this particular car, but I've driven it a couple of years ago. I want you to talk to me about what it was like to drive an FD RX-7 um on the track what is that like what is the situation there because i enjoyed this car on the street i want to hear the, the I, we need to compare notes here so on the track it's it's a bit of a disappointment what and i'm gonna i'm gonna explain what i mean by that because technology has moved so far forward in terms of performance that older performance cars it, the the bar has been raised and you have to contextualize those vehicles in the era they were mm -hmm. they were built in order to be able to appreciate them. Okay. But the the FDRX7 in the rotary twin turbo car, it's right on the cusp of being very modern, modern enough that when you put it up against, say, a Mustang, mm -hmm. uh, and you put them on a track, and the Mustang obliterates a stock form FD, uh, it it really gives you pause. Um, the 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 corollary, or sorry, the the counterpoint to that. 
is as a platform for high performance, you can really upgrade the FD uh, suspension-wise, power-wise, and bring it in line with what you would expect from a more modern car. But in okay. stock form, on a racetrack, I was far more impressed by the FB. The, Interesting. Uh, even though it has a live rear axle, just the combination of lightness with the naturally aspirated, uh, I believe it's a 12A rotary engine, that was a lot of fun. The FD was fun, but if I had to pick, I... To go home, if if someone said, "Hey, this is the only car you're going to drive on the track for the rest of your life," I would take the FB, no question. Wow. Now, bringing it to the street was an entirely different experience because it allowed me to take the car out of the context of, <clears throat> "Okay, you're just redlining it, you're 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 bringing it to the limits that you're comfortable at, and you're trying to wring everything out of it," which is kind of where the car fell down in a modern context. And I was put in an environment where it was like, "Hey." Uh, what's it like to drive this car every day? What's it like to drive it in traffic? What's the personality of the car like? That and sounds tough. That sounds really tough. I can't imagine it being um, comparable with any modern car in that in those senses. Well, here's here's where the FD really shone. Like okay. that, it, it, taking it off the track in stock form, putting it on the street, really demonstrated how amazing of a vehicle and a platform it is, and, and how different it is from modern vehicles the first thing you notice is it's really light it's it's yeah. i believe just around 2800 pounds which is which, light by today's standard like still. it's it's yeah it, it was light by that by standards back then i mean the miata was only 300 pounds less in the same era i mean i think at an s2000 weighs 300 pounds more or 200 pounds more than yeah. a than an rx7 so that that kind of gives you an idea um but uh, you notice the lightness because it, the power in the car, it's not, you know, it doesn't throw your head back. It's 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 about 265 horsepower, I believe. Is, uh, is that right, Sammy? I'm not sure because this is during that era of uh, the Japanese uh, automakers' agreement where they couldn't say they had they made more than 276. Yeah. So, but I do believe <clears throat> the RX-7 stock, uh, it 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 uh, it. I'm trying to look up the number right here. I had it in front of me, and it has disappeared. But, um, yeah, so here we go. It's a 1.3-liter engine. You have a twin turbo, 255 horsepower in the U.S., and only 217 pound-feet of torque. So mm -hmm. where it feels light is when you when you go full throttle, it feels quick. Yeah. And it would, o it would only feel quick if it was light because that's not enough power to move a Mustang-sized car. Like if you were a 3,800-pound car, you would be disappointed in this engine. But, but because it's not – you mm -hmm. really you really benefit from the power delivery of the rotary plus the fact that the engine itself is very light and it is able to move back behind the front axle to improve the balance of the vehicle so mm -hmm. everything about the FD just works together to give you a really great driving experience i love this car for a ton of reasons the lightweightness of it or the or the weight of it in general is impressive um and it's even furthermore i like I, I don't know if you believe in this, but apparently that 276 or 255 number was never the real output of the, they were just being very conservative and, uh, and and didn't report how much it actually made. Now that's a bit of a conspiracy because when you drive the car, it never feels like just 270 or 250 horsepower. It feels like a lot of power. It feels really fast. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, on a racetrack, it didn't feel really fast. On the street, it felt enough to keep up with with anything, um, yeah, and you can it, it pass does, with ease. It was it was nothing that you had to to worry about. No, it does sixty to, in five, it does sixty in five seconds. I mean that's pretty quick, that but it's also a, it's full second and a half slower than than top tier performance cars today. Yes, um, but this is 
20 years old, at least 20 years old, right? 25. 25 years old. Um, a couple of other things, though. You mentioned the, the smoothness of the rotary powertrain. Well, yes this and no. This is one of the I, most I, I interesting novelties. Yes, okay. This is one of the most interesting novelties I've ever experienced in the, in the automotive industry. This car has a sequential twin-turbo setup that that has a very different behavior at the low end of the rev range than it does at the high end of the rev range. Did you notice this? Because I noticed this. What, so, sorry, say that again. High end, low end. I, 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 I didn't hear you properly. I said that this sequential turbo system, uh, the way the engine behaves at the low end, uh, say under 4,000 or 4,500 RPM, is very different than the way the car feels above that, that threshold. It feels crazy. It's, it's I, super interesting. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't really notice that and it, it's interesting that you mentioned 4500 rpm because that's the switching point for the turbos mm-hmm. but the way the way the car is set up is you have um, 10 psi of boost right away or as soon as it can deliver it at the low rpm and then at 4500 rpm the first turbo hands things over to the second turbo mm-hmm. and there's a there's a drop of two psi when that happens and you 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 go 10 8 10 and you notice it right away yeah. at 4500 you notice the drop and there's a hole in the in the power delivery. But what what I found fascinating about that is modern turbo cars, they don't have to worry about that anymore. No. Like you have a single turbo or a twin turbo, and it's going to be smooth throughout the entire power band, no matter what. You're not gonna you might notice some lag at the beginning, but you're never gonna notice a handover. And what's fascinating to me is back in 1993, this was the the state of the art. This is how Mazda was like, you know what? <laughs> We're, there's gonna be an 8,000 RPM red line, but we want power to feel the same when you're moving throughout that entire you know the entire range of of engine speeds so we're going to put mm-hmm. in an incredibly comp i think there's 67 hoses that control the inter the uh the connected <laughs> turbos and uh we're going to do it that way it's it's mostly mechanical um and it's it's just incredible that the difference between the engineering behind that and then what we have today where turbos are so common i'll admit though the way that the rx7 feels uh that engine feels this is the third i think it's called the thir- it's a what is it called 13 does it have a name? It's a 13B dash RAW. 13B. Um, the way this feels, see, modern turbos, when you when you when you punch it on these things, they they deliver power consistently, and then they kind of drop off. You can't tell me that you've never felt that before in a in a in a turbocharged vehicle um, today. It, it, de- it depends on how the car is tuned. Okay, I never felt that drop off period in the RX7, or at least I don't remember that. Um, like I said, it was a couple of years ago when I drove this car, so my notes are, are dated and are tinged with time. Um, did you notice that this thing just felt strong all the way through? Well, like I was saying, there's the, the very definite drop-off at 4,500 RPM. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't avoid and then that. Above, it, and then above that until you change gears? No, above that it goes back to 10 PSI. There's just there's a 4,500 RPM bump okay. where it drops to 8 PSI um, because of the ways the sequentials work. But also don't forget, this isn't a piston engine. So it's not gonna it's not gonna drive anything like a modern car yeah. at all. It's it's a rotary engine. It it's an entirely different concept um, for maintaining and generating power. So it's it's very hard to compare to a modern turbo in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things though that's worth pointing out in the RX7, this FD is one of the most beautiful cars ever built today. Um, I think it's gorgeous. I think it's a standout. It's a benchmark. It's one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on the road. And uh, I think it should go down in history as being a, a beautiful car, especially from this era. 
Yeah, it's it's absolutely gorgeous as a car. It's it's my favorite Japanese design of all time, and one of my favorite designs, period, regardless mm-hmm. of country of origin. There's a owning one of these is maintenance intensive. You really have to be on the ball. You have to if you take care of it, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But taking care of it is not a casual thing. Uh, even things like y- you you can't just turn it on and turn it off right away. You have mm-hmm. to let it idle out. You have to let it cool down. You don't want to run the risk of flooding it. There's just a lot of care and feeding that goes into any type of RX-7 experience for the FD. Uh, so it's not a casual vehicle to own. Um, and if you get one that hasn't been taken care of, you're probably looking at an engine rebuild, and that's about five grand. So there's a lot of weight and baggage that goes into buying one of these and owning one of these. Yeah. Even though they're not that expensive, if you look at other uh, at other Japanese cars of that era... Uh, the Supra right now has kind of taken off. It's people like that generation Supra, like 90, 94 to 98 or whatever. Um, people are collecting them. People are going crazy with big power builds. But with the RX-7, I mean, pretty much the nicest RX-7 in the world is going to be 50 grand. Mm-hmm. And you could get a really, really nice driver for under 30. And you can get a project for like 10, 15. You know, these are very accessible cars, which is crazy because there are not very many of them. Mm-hmm. They did not make a ton of these cars. Um, they only made 13,879, period. And those are the ones that came to the United States. Wow. So 93, 94, and 95. You can you can import right-hand drive ones now. They made them mm-hmm. until um, just past 2000. But uh, it's a rare car. Yeah. In, in, in 95, they only made 500. <laughs> I saw one on the road the other day, and I got – I mean, I got excited. I cannot, I cannot hide my excitement for this car. I think it's – Yeah, I, I dropped the WRX off at a friend of mine's shop, and he had one in the front and one in the back. And, I mean, they're just, they're just gorgeous. But Of this generation always... in particular, too. I know what you said. Yeah. The, F, the FC and the FBs as well have some uh, interesting elements to them. Well, the FC not really, but the FB definitely. And I think that this thing just – you know what? It's interesting that they won't bring back this nameplate, or if they will, I don't think they should. I think it's – I well, think, they, they, they evolved it into the RX-8, right? Well, the RX-8 it's, is very different. It has that weird um, half door. Like, it, it tried to be a little bit more practical. It's it's a little bit bigger. It doesn't have the turbocharged element of the of the RX-7. Um, no, but, I mean, the first gen, first and second gen RX-7s, well, the, the, the Series 1 to 3 or whatever, they weren't turbo either. In Japan, the FD was a four-seater. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in North America, it wasn't. Um, but the in North America, I believe there were the uh, the FB was more of a GT car. I mean, the F, the RX-7 changed its mission several times. Like, I mean, mm. you had lightweight sports car, then you had GT car, then you had turbocharged supercar. And then when the RX-8 came out, they were like, well, it's going to be sort of a GT car, but it's going to be very light, and it'll still be very fun to drive. And the problem was those motors had the same kinds of issues that the FD had in terms of they were maintenance intensive and people didn't take care of them. Well, I mean, it is interesting. We've seen Mazda want to bring something. I don't know if that's true or not, but they've had so many different uh, concept cars. I think most notably in 2015, they unveiled the RX Vision concept, yes. which is a gorgeous concept car. They brought that to the Toyota, uh, sorry, the Tokyo Motor Show. That's actually why I was at Mine. Oh, yeah? And yeah. it was interesting because we thought that... Um, in 2017, you might be seeing something um, like a new rotary-powered car because it would be apparently the 50-year anniversary of the first Mazda uh, of the first Mazda Cosmo, uh, the first rotary-powered sports car. But 
2017 came and went and we didn't get anything like that so i i never thought we would see one there's they're having so many problems trying the reason one of the other reasons the rx8 disappeared is you can't get it past emissions oh for sure and the fuel mileage is horrendous <laughs> it's like a V8. absolutely horrendous so those are really big issues the rotary engine makes a lot of sense if you wanted to use it as a a generator mm -hmm. or a power adder for a hybrid car uh, where it can do steady state and um, it's relatively compact. It's very easy to put it in in places you wouldn't be able to fit a piston engine. But as a as a power plant for a modern car, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. So, what is your takeaway with this car? Would you get one if you could? I would, but I wouldn't race it. Okay, that's fine. Right? Um, Isn't that okay? I, I would just. I guess. I mean, yeah, I would drive it and I would enjoy it it's it's a beautiful car and there aren't very many left so trying to find one that hasn't been molesterated is not easy <laughs> but um yeah it's uh it's definitely a an important slice of history and uh, one of the most collectible cars from the 90s in my opinion i agree i i if i could i would buy one uh they're not easy to find in in good shape and they like you said they all have some kind of baggage that you have to be you have to be aware of and uh, you don't really want that when you don't always want that when you get um, a new a new member of your garage, right? Are you saying there are times where you do want baggage? <laughs> Sometimes, if you've got the time to deal with it, right? And the money, I guess so. and the money to deal with it. If you happen to be a gifted rotary mechanic, yeah, then maybe yeah. <laughs> well, Sammy, um, if people wanted to hear us talk about things that aren't rotaries, maybe things in the past, things in the future, where where can they? find us online to, to hear more. Well, I recommend them going to uh, our website, which is unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And from there, you can actually subscribe to our podcast through whatever podcast client you use. That means Google Play Music, Apple Music, Apple iTunes, um, Spotify. What else do we have? Uh, CastBox. CastBox. I always forget CastBox. CastBox. Um, and you can use all of those those buttons on our podcast on our website to subscribe to the podcast. Or you can go to Facebook. You can search for us. We're Unnamed Automotive Podcast, and you can follow us there. Where we where we post links to our latest episodes right there. And if you want to get a hold of us, Sammy prefers the Twitter because he has yet to recognize it as the cesspool that it is. His <laughs> handle is at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm also on the Twitter at Hunting Benjamin. Or you can email me the old-fashioned way. Just lick those digital stamps and send it to Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. Um, and Ben, what are you driving next week? Next week, I'm going to be talking about the GMC Canyon, Ooh. which is uh, I have a diesel version of that pickup. And I, uh, spoiler alert, I like it a lot. I'm ex I can't wait to find out. I've got a comparison again next week, this time between a Jeep Grand Cherokee and a Kia Sorento. So stay tuned for that. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening.